Well, good evening. Uh, welcome back after a couple of weeks uh, break and um, to the tail end of the second uh, semester of our School of Theology. Uh, it's hard to believe, but this is lecture number 24. Uh, 24 lectures we've had together since this uh, began, and um, we, we really are only at the very beginning of uh, the whole uh, scope of uh, Christian theology. T- tonight, uh, we transitioned last time, I think, to what we might call the doctrine of man or anthropology. And uh, we looked at uh, aspects of creation, and especially last time, uh, the image of God in man, the uh, so-called imago dei, and the importance of uh, Genesis uh, chapter 1 and verse 28, that in the image of God, he created uh, uh, Adam and Eve, and uh, the implications of that uh, created image. Now, one of the things we saw last time was that as a consequence uh, of the fall, and uh, we haven't explored this fully yet, uh, as a consequence of the fall, man, man's uh, capacity to reflect the image of God uh, has, has been uh, drastically curtailed. Uh, it's not true that man has lost the image of God uh, entirely. Uh, one of the famous uh, Uh, ways of putting this would be John Calvin's way of putting it, uh, describing describing fallen man like a ruined castle. Uh, That makes more sense to me perhaps than it does to you in that uh, I I come from a country where there are castles almost on every every corner. Uh, I uh, went to school uh, opposite uh, ruined castle, went to a university. Uh, Rosemary and I went to university uh, and often uh, walked around the ruins of a 10th, 11th century castle. Uh, you, you could see the foundations and the walls were still three, four, five feet, uh, and in the corners, maybe 10 or 12 feet, uh, but going back to the 12th century. But you had to imagine what the original castle looked like. But the castle was still there, it was still recognizable. Uh, And uh, man, uh, subsequent to the fall, is like a ruined castle. Now we'll explore this a little more uh, in the coming weeks, next week and the week after, because uh, we we are heading on a trajectory now that will look at the doctrine of sin uh, and the fall and the consequences of the fall and and the implications of all of that. But we still need to look at... uh, one of these uh, transitionary issues uh, from uh, the doctrine of creation and the doctrine of the creation of Adam and Eve uh, and the so-called creation mandates that are given uh, in the two creation uh, narratives of Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. And we're going to begin uh, tonight. I've called it Man and the Environment. it's, uh, I mean that in a fairly generic way, although there will be some specificity to what I'm going to talk about tonight. But uh, I want to begin with a text, Genesis 1.28. Uh, you see it there under, under 1.1. And God blessed them, and God said to them, this is Adam and Eve, 
Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Uh, this, is, uh, this is the mandate of Genesis 1, uh, 28. And there are five uh, imperatives in that uh, verse, verse 28. Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, uh, subdue it, uh, have dominion over uh, everything that uh, lives uh, and moves on the earth. Now there's a, a parallel text uh, that uh, adds and, and uh, says uh, some important things in verse 22. Uh, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters in the seas and let birds Uh, multiply on uh, the earth. Uh, Verse 22, uh, uh, a mandate to the creation in general and to the fish. Uh, uh, Verse 22 is speaking, first of all, to the fish. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters in the seas. This is a mandate given to the fish. uh, And let birds multiply on the earth. Uh, and uh, the same verbs are used for the fish and, and for Adam and Eve in verse uh, 28. Both man then and fish uh, are blessed and uh, commanded seemingly at first. This is a mandate for uh, procreation uh, to, to, uh, to secure the longevity of the species, to ensure that, uh, that the species uh, survive through uh, generations. Uh, But note the difference. There is a difference. Uh, God speaks about the fish in verse 22, but he speaks directly to uh, the man. God said to them in verse uh, 28. Uh, And uh, then this uh, mandate, uh, this procreation mandate is given again after the flood to Adam, uh, to Noah and his wife and the three Uh, sons and to their wives, God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Now, uh, let me say a word about the Genesis 9 uh, passage. Uh, You might think after the uh, ecological disaster uh, of the flood, uh, the curse that came down uh, upon uh, the earth, Uh, that uh, it would have been uh, relatively uh, easy for man uh, to say uh, something like, who wants to raise children in a world like this? Uh, We don't want to put our children through this. Uh, There are folks saying something similar today, of course, uh, in light of uh, portents of uh, doom and gloom and disaster and nuclear war and, and whatever that lies ahead. Uh, that it's, uh, that it's uh, wrong or unethical or unwise to bring children into the world. Uh, and uh, God says uh, after the flood, he repeats this mandate for uh, pr- procreation. Uh, despite all the risks uh, of uh, nuclear holocaust or ecological calamity or whatever it happens to be, uh, we want to raise uh, children uh, in this world. Now, The Bible has a lot more to say about the whole procreation mandate, of course, particularly for covenant uh, families, and that's for another time and another place. Uh, But here is a general mandate uh, that that God gives. 
It's a mandate for um, more than reproduction. It's a mandate for colonization, uh, that the world was to be occupied. Uh, at this point in time, it's only a small portion. Of course, in Adam and Eve's case, it's just the Garden of Eden, uh, and they are to go beyond, their, the families are to go to beyond the Garden of Eden, having been excluded from, from entering it. Uh, and similarly with, uh, with Noah, uh, wherever, wherever Noah landed in uh, Ararat or wherever it was, uh, he, is, uh, he is told to colonize uh, the earth and, and perhaps to colonize the universe, if that's where you want to go. Uh, to go where no man has gone before, if I may cite uh, the opening lines of uh, Star Trek. Um, uh, it is, uh, I, th- I think it is uh, something that God instills within us. Uh, it's part, I think, of the Imago Dei. It's part of the way we image God. We are explorers. We are by nature inquisitive. Uh, we are by nature, uh, uh, we are given by nature an, in- an inquisitiveness. Uh, uh, we want to know what's beyond uh, the front. We live on the frontier. We want to know what's, uh, what's beyond. Now, there's a sinful way of addressing that, and then there's, there's a way that you do that in subjection to the sovereignty and lordship and governance uh, of God. So it's, it's more than just a mandate for procreation. It's a mandate for, for colonization. The universe is for you, God is saying here. Uh, and, not, and they want simply to stay in uh, paradise. Uh, you know, these days when you speak... Uh, I used to be able to speak and uh, never think twice about what I was saying, but these days things get recorded, uh, and therefore it is just possible that somebody might listen to what you're saying in the furthermost corners of the earth. Uh, and if you say something about your family, as I'm, a, as I'm about to say something about my family, it's just possible that my family might even hear this. Um, so I have to, I have to uh, add a certain caveat um, uh, I, I sometimes tease my older brother because he lives, uh, he lives maybe, maybe five miles from where he grew up. Uh, of course, he has lived in other parts of the world, but he has, he has gone back to, uh, to where he grew up. Um, th- this, is a, this, is a, this is God saying the, the world is yours. The universe is, is yours. Now, he adds to this... Um, these, uh, these, two, um, uh, these two imperatives, subdue and have dominion. Subdue it uh, and have dominion uh, over the fish and the birds and every living thing. Uh, two, two verbs, subduing and having and exercising dominion. Uh, this is sometimes referred to then as uh, the dominion Mandate. It's given. Uh, it's given other uh, expressions too. Uh, this is uh, man's uh, lordship uh, over creation. God, God creates man and gives to man, uh, and sees man as a vice, uh, as a vice uh, regent uh, under the sovereignty of God. Man is a vice regent. Uh, look at uh, Genesis 1:22. The other text. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. 
uh, to work it and keep it. Uh, we'll, we'll come to what that means in terms of labor in a minute, but uh, part of working and keeping is the idea of subduing. It's the idea of having, of having dominion. Um, now, what does, uh, what does subduing and having dominion uh, mean? What does ruling over creation mean? And uh, it is uh, suggested that this is um, a royal figure of speech, uh, that, man, that man is being given, as it were, prerogatives that belong to royalty. Uh, now think of the 8th Psalm, Psalm 8 and verse 5. You have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, uh, or in some uh, translations, the American uh, Standard Version, for example, um, uh, you have made him a little lower than God. Uh, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man uh, that you visit him? You've made him a little lower than the angels, or in some renditions, you've made him a little lower than God. Man isn't just another animal. He, he's not just one in a, in a long line of evolutionary processes and he's just uh, one, one uh, gene away from a chimpanzee. He's much more than that. He is created uh, with, with the image of God. The status that man has puts him in a different category altogether from the rest of creation. And I'm going to come back to that in a moment because that, that is counter-cultural. Uh, in the culture that we live today, uh, that statement would be viewed as uh, arrogant. Uh, and uh, if you are watching, for, well, let me hold that thought for, for a little later. Uh, a quotation here from John Currid. Uh, John Currid was uh, here. Some of you remember at the Thornwell uh, um, the, uh, the Thornwell lectures, uh, the summer lectures, Sunday school lectures uh, last year uh, came and spoke, uh, teaches Old Testament uh, in uh, RTS in Charlotte. And uh, he says, this reflects the idea that being fruitful, he's talking about uh, subduing and having dominion. And he's going back now to the procreation mandate and he's, and he's saying the fact that the procreation man- mandate also includes the idea of subduing and having dominion reflects, he says, the idea that being fruitful, multiplying and filling are not merely commands relating to human reproduction. Rather, they apply to all of life, including uh, the socioeconomic and spiritual realms, as well as to giving birth. The concepts of subduing and ruling support the interpretation of this verse as a world and life directive. Man is to be overseer of the earthly kingdom. Now, do you see what he's saying? Uh, He's saying that the the verbs to subdue and to have dominion uh, is the the impetus that provides a world and life view or a a cultural mandate, uh, if you like. Uh, that, that man is to exercise this authority, it's an authority under God and in subjection to God, but it's an authority over creation in, in all the aspects of creation, uh, sociologically and politically and artistically and uh, agriculturally and, and, and every other conceivable uh, way. 
Now, uh, debate uh, certainly exists um, uh, over, the, over the terminology and the apparent uh, meaning. Uh, uh, one of the debates, and it's a, it's a relevant debate, it's an important debate, um, uh, is, the, is, the, is the view that, that exercising authority and exercising dominion over creation means that man can do whatever he likes with creation. If it serves his end and it serves his purpose, he is free to do it. And there are certainly allegations, and I've given you uh, one particular source uh, here, an, an, an oft-cited uh, uh, source, uh, Lynn White Jr., the historical roots of our ecological crisis, and he blames uh, the Judeo-Christian culture. Uh, that the reason why the planet or, or there are environmental, environmental uh, tensions and strains uh, in the universe today is because uh, man has used this, this, this uh, lordship mandate, this uh, governance mandate, and has used it uh, unethically, has used it without regard for other factors. Uh, and... Uh, he says uh, he calls for a refocused Christianity, not a wholesale repudiation of it. Uh, what we do about ecology depends on our ideas of the man-nature relationship. Well, that's not saying a, a whole lot, uh, for sure. Uh, but uh, behind it is a, is a not-too-subtle um, uh, blame, uh, allegation being made against the Judeo-Christian culture of the last uh, hundred, hundred since the Industrial Revolution, um, that that culture has, uh, has given a carte, carte blanche uh, approval to um, the, the abuse of the environment because uh, under the aegis of man is lord over his, uh, over his uh, environment. Now, contrast that with, um, I don't know if you saw the Nature, uh, Two Hour Nature program that's uh, being aired, I think, on, on ETV at the minute, and uh, last week's, I think, uh, got home, I think it's aired on a Wednesday evening, I may be mistaken about that, but uh, when you reach a certain age, all days seem to blur into each other, but I think it was last Wednesday evening that I got home and I started watching, and it was about trees, and it was fascinating. It was about the science of trees, and uh, um, uh, apparently scientists now have, uh, have, have proven uh, that uh, trees speak to each other and, and, and communicate with each other, and uh, they let off certain gases uh, and send signals through their root systems uh, to other trees and so on. Uh, the science sounded kind of sort of plausible. I, I, I don't... You know, I don't know. I, I, I'm in no position to say the science is completely bunk. Uh, maybe God, in his, uh, in his remarkable sovereignty, has created trees that actually do communicate with each other. It is a life form of some kind. But you could see where this was going, of course. Um, that, uh, that, that, that man has no right to utilize trees... Uh, without, uh, without not just uh, some kind of ethical standard with regard to other human beings, but an ethical standard with regard to other trees. Um, and this was, uh, this was, I think, like tree hugging with science. Uh, 
Um, and, uh, but but it, it, it's all part of this. It was, it, was, it was part of the agenda, part of the culture that says that, that man shares this environment, not just with other human beings, and that's an important issue. You know, if you produce pollution that's going to kill people in other parts of the world because of the way the wind blows, I think you have some responsibility for that. But, but th- this was saying much more than that. We share this planet not just with, with uh, other human beings, but we share it with animals and fish and birds and trees and vegetation and, and, and everything else. Well, this, uh, this is, uh, according to Currid, then, that, that uh, and, and a general reformed consensus would view uh, Genesis uh, 1.28 as, as giving the imprimatur for a cultural, what's called a cultural mandate. And I want to ask uh, some questions now. What is uh, the cultural mandate? Uh, and I'm, uh, I've, I've given you some kind of uh, general explanation uh, for the cultural mandate, it's the command to exercise dominion over the earth or over the universe, to subdue it, develop it, develop its latent potential. Uh, we are made in God's image. Uh, mankind is to fill the earth with his glory through creating what we commonly call culture, and that's the cultural uh, mandate. Now, that mandate is concerned uh, with the uh, outward movement of the race. Uh, the race was created to, uh, as I said, to live on the frontier. Uh, and uh, you see that in Genesis uh, 2, uh, all the rivers and so on, a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers, and you're given the names of all these rivers, and uh, um, you know, what's beyond the river, what's on the other side of the river, uh, that frontier spirit. Man as uh, explorer and scientist, uh, harnessing uh, the world uh, for human uh, habitat. Now, part of that, uh, let me take this in, a, in, in one direction, part of that is uh, the mandate then to subdue the earth, uh, to, produce, uh, to produce expressions uh, of our... Uh, um, of the way in which we reflect the image of God, uh, so, so God image reflections in uh, what we do. Uh, and one area of that would be in um, the area of art, for example. Uh, so uh, music, the creation of music, uh, or of uh, art, or poetry, or creative writing, or sculpture, or basket weaving, or cartoon drawing, or whatever it is, Uh, without becoming uh, snobby here about what the form of art uh, that we're talking about. Uh, All of that is part of of the mandate that God uh, gives to subdue the universe and and bring him glory. Uh, Take this universe, take it in uh, whatever direction uh, that you're gifted in. Uh, all of that has to be within moral and ethical guidelines and standards, but all of that uh, for, the, for, the glory of, uh, for the glory of God. Now, um, you see that uh, in the Old Testament, in Genesis, uh, the line of uh, Jubal uh, were musicians, uh, and Tubal Cain were metallurgists, and you see that in Genesis 4. Uh, 21 and 22, so you see a, a line 
developing and they seem to have uh, musical gifts and then you see another line developing and they seem to have gifts in, in metallurgy and, uh, and, and, and producing things in metals. Um, or in Exodus 38, uh, Oholiab, the son of Ahisamach of the tribe of Dan, an engraver and designer and embroiderer in blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen. So you have uh, Oholiab and then you have Bezalel uh, in the previous chapter, Exodus 37, uh, who makes an ark of acacia wood. Uh, and he's obviously a carpenter, and not only that, but he inlays uh, with, uh, with pure gold inside and out and makes moldings of gold around it and so on. So you see the development of, a, of an artistic culture uh, in, uh, in Genesis and in uh, Exodus. Now all of that is related to our previous uh, study on uh, the image of God in Genesis 1 26. And the cultural uh, mandate uh, applies even though uh, that image of God has been marred for the Christian. It has been, it has been renewed. It, it isn't perfect, uh, but it certainly has been renewed in Christ. Um, but that mandate is given to man as man and not simply to this is not simply a mandate to Christians but this is a, a mandate that, that recognizes um, the value of, um, of uh, say art or music or, or culture even, even in the unregenerate man now uh, this is a, an area that uh, could, could take us uh, uh, on, a, on a side uh, tour for several weeks and I, I don't want to do that. Uh, let me, I've su- I'm suggesting here some um, literature that would help you if you're interested. Uh, two particular books I think are of uh, prime importance here and very helpful books. One by Andy Crouch, uh, Culture Making, uh, Recovering Our Creative Calling. And Ken Myers, All God's Children in Blue Suede Shoes, Christians and Popular Culture. Uh, you, you may not agree with everything Ken Myers uh, says, but uh, it's, uh, it's a very important uh, text on this uh, issue. Now, there is a tendency, there is a tendency, I think, in our circles today to talk about redeeming the culture uh, through. Uh, through expressions of our own culture, so you, you I have no idea what that means. I, I, I hear it a lot. I, I think, I think, as I put down here, um, I don't, uh, I, I don't think a great deal of it. Uh, I think the expression doesn't convey um, anything of any real meaning. Um, uh, only, only salvation in Christ will event- can, can eventually redeem. So, so my music making or my artistry in itself doesn't redeem. I think that you can prevent a culture from sliding for sure. Uh, and there are folk in this uh, room uh, who are engaged in uh, the, uh, in, ensuring um, uh, in the world of politics or economics or business uh, that our culture doesn't uh, doesn't slide anymore into uh, an abandonment of of uh, biblical principles for sure, uh, but I don't think that hanging out in Starbucks and sipping a latte is redeeming the culture. And I, I do find 
I do find Christians talking like that these days and have absolutely no idea what it is they're talking about. Um, uh, an important book here is uh, Abraham Kuyper's um, lectures on Calvinism. Uh, these were lectures that he gave at Princeton Seminary in 1898. Uh, and... Uh, uh, it was, they, were, they were vastly significant uh, lectures and he lectures on uh, the flight path today came in right over First Pres uh, for the first time I think ever uh, when I flew into Columbia Airport I was able to pinpoint uh, Bull Street and find First uh, Pres from whatever height it was so that, that was for some reason today the, the planes are landing directly over this uh, church. Um, Abraham Kuyper's lectures on Calvinism, and uh, there are seven of them, uh, and among them are lectures on, uh, on the role of Calvinism, uh, on art and, and, and music. Um, they're not flawless lectures, in my opinion. Uh, Kuyper revealed some of his own prejudices, I think, even in those lectures, uh, and some of his own uh, cultural, uh, Dutch cultural expressions come through in those uh, le- lectures for sure, but they're, they're hugely significant in terms of uh, what does the Bible have to say about culture and about a man's responsibility for exercising dominion uh, over the universe. And another uh, equally important uh, lecture was one given by another Dutchman, Herman Bavink, and the lecture is called Common uh, grace. Uh, you've heard the story before uh, on my part. Uh, I, I grew up uh, with an obsession for classical music. Um, I was uh, th- three or so uh, when I, uh, my, one of my first um, memories that I have, uh, sitting on my grandfather's uh, knee, uh, listening to uh, Puccini's La Boheme and uh, uh, he had sent my two brothers and sister out into the garden and he'd sent his wife into the kitchen uh, because she didn't stop talking and uh, he liked to listen to music without talking uh, and uh, I, can, I can see it, I can see myself sitting on his knee he died when I was five uh, his, uh, his photograph sits on my desk at home and uh, when he died uh, we were all brought into his uh, bedroom he, he, he had a long battle with cancer for a year and a half or so he was literally skin and bone as a child's memory uh, when he died and uh, I think a day or two before he died uh, all four children were brought in to see him and he had a present for each one and uh, he gave me a, a, a Parker fountain pen and told me to write and uh, he gave my uh, older brother uh, a rugby ball and uh, my, young, my younger brother a cricket bat and, uh, and I, I don't remember what he gave my sister um, but I do, I do remember it uh, I, I have lost the fountain pen uh, the follies of youth um, I, I wish I wish I could, I could retrieve it, it's gone uh, I can describe it to you, it was green and uh, and worse than that, uh, when he died, he, he left a little note and uh, all of his classical music uh, collection. And he had about 500 uh, LPs. And he was a very uh, fussy and, and, and prudent uh, collector of music. And uh, these were the finest uh, 
LPs you could, you could, you could have and um, he left them to me because uh, I was the only one who showed any interest in, in uh, classical music and uh, my grandmother gave them to me when I was 15 and, uh, and then I was uh, converted at 18 and about two months after I was converted I met this uh, very zealous uh, young man who wanted to disciple me and uh, I, I would go to his home and we'd engage in these Bible studies and uh, at the end of one of these Bible studies he said to me if you're serious about uh, holiness uh, you'll get rid of your uh, classical music and the next day I took them all to the market and sold them for I think five pounds uh, which is about seven dollars fifty uh, and then a week later regretted it uh, but it was too late and uh, I lost them uh, this uh, this was, an, this was entirely a, a, a false view of, uh, uh, of uh, uh, the Christian's uh, role and, and attitude towards um, culture and towards uh, art and music and so on. Uh, that the music in and of itself, uh, you, you know, you don't have to be a Christian to write good music. And contrary, Christians often don't write good music. Uh, that... that, that you know, just, just adding, adding Christian before the music doesn't make the music Christian any more than adding Christian. It might, be, it might be music about a sacred text, but the music itself, I don't think, is Christian. And, and we have experts here who may be disagreeing with me. But um, uh, I, I think that what Genesis 1.28 is saying is that man... man in the image of God is to go and exercise lordship over the universe and he can do that as a Christian or he may do that as a non-Christian and still produce something that has some merit to it that, that goodness doesn't simply belong to, to something that is Christian or to the church that, that there is good even in, fallen, even in the fallen uh, world uh, and uh, all of us to some extent uh, live our lives like that, and if we didn't, and if we didn't, we would become uh, hermits, or we would be, we would enter the monastery, or we would retreat altogether as much as possible uh, out of the world. Uh, if only I had known uh, when I was uh, 18 the doctrine of common grace. Uh, that grace is to be found uh, outside of God's redemptive purposes. Uh, that uh, God's goodness can be viewed and seen uh, in the natural uh, world. So that's the, uh, that's the, the cultural mandate uh, to, uh, to express to the glory of God uh, in whatever field, uh, you know, bound as that is by moral and, and ethical strictures, by, by the Ten Commandments for sure. Um, but it says... Uh, it says that it's a, legitimate, um, it's a legitimate thing to be involved in art or music or sculpture or, or creative writing or, you know, making, making um, uh, drawing cartoons or whatever, whatever it is uh, that has a cultural, uh, um, um, a, a cultural expression uh, to it. Now, let's, go, let's move on to the agricultural mandate. Uh, the Lord took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Uh, to work it and to keep it. 
And then I've got a, a little technical note there on the distinction between ground and field. Um, uh, Genesis 2.5, for example, distinguishes between two uh, types of land. Uh, and one is uncultivated, uh, what is sometimes called the plain or the field, uh, the wilderness uh, that's fit only for uh, animal grazing, uh, and, and uh, another word, um, uh, land, uh, where it is possible with irrigation uh, to, for, for human being and human effort uh, to produce uh, something. This is the ordinance of labor. This is the mandate of labor. Uh, the Lord took the man and put him in the garden of Eden. Right? This isn't, work isn't a curse. Work doesn't come after the fall. There's, there's work to do in the Garden of Eden. Uh, even in the Garden of Eden, it was, it was paradise, but even it needed cultivation. Uh, even it needed to be worked. Uh, and, uh, uh, you know, weeds are not simply the product of the fall. Uh, uh, I, and, 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 and this may be disappointing, but I don't, I don't think that the new heavens and the new earth will be without employment, without work. There'll be cultivation. There'll be tilling to do in the new heavens and in the new earth too. Uh, the fact is that it will be productive and not as it is now under the curse where, where thorns infest the ground and, and you do work with the sweat of one's brow because it is often unproductive because, because creation fights back against you, uh, as it were. Well, this is, uh, this is the ordinance of uh, labor. Um, John Murray has an interesting uh, point to make here that God is giving sanction and blessing to manual labor. Now, we, we often think, especially those of us who are professionals, um, we often think of work that we call, and, and I think we wrongly call it, and I'm as guilty as anybody, of calling it mundane. You know, there's, there's important work, and then there's mundane work, and, and God is saying tilling the ground is not mundane work. Uh, there's, a kind of, there's a kind of blessing that's attached here, John Murray says, um, to, um, agri to agriculture and horticulture. Uh, to, there's, a, there's a dignity to the soil. Uh, actually, that's an interesting... Uh, concept to think about in the development of how sin progresses in culture in Genesis. And uh, in Genesis, uh, you know, the Bible records that the origin of the city of urban life as opposed to rural uh, life, that the origin of the city uh, is uh, part of Cain's uh, rebellion uh, against God. And he, and he builds the city of Enoch, uh, named, it, named it after his son, uh, as, a, as a refuge against uh, God's uh, curse uh, upon him. Uh, and so I think you do see that motif in, in the Bible of, you know, where does sin sort of congregate? And it congregates very often in the city. And that's true today. Um, you know, when I grew up in rural Wales on a farm, I mean, I mean there were things that I was completely naive about. Whereas if I been raised in a city, I probably would not have been naive about some of those, uh, some of those things. Um, God then uh, giving this agricultural mandate, uh, the mandate to work, 
uh, and the blessing of work and the blessing especially of, uh, of agriculture. Now, let's look at it a little more. 2.15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden uh, of Eden uh, to, uh, to work and to keep it. Uh, cultivation, uh, you know, why weren't there weeds in paradise? Not because there weren't any weeds in paradise. It's because he was such a good gardener. That's why there were no weeds in, in, in paradise. And after the fall, they rise because man has lost his efficiency and, to some extent, his ability. Thorns and briars multiply gradually. We, we, are, we are deacons, then, of the soil, uh, of the environment. Uh, soil is a precious uh, thing. And then keeping and guarding. Um, conservation, the idea of uh, protection. We are... We are custodians of the soil. Right? That's, that's not me entering to green politics here. I'm, I'm, I think I'm just uh, saying what uh, Genesis 2.15 is saying. Um, it's not this, the, the, the soil is there for us. Uh, and and uh, uh, we, are to, we are to look after the soil and it will look after us. Um, so there's, uh, there's cultivation and keeping and guarding and, uh, and uh, work, and we've, we've already talked about that. Now, uh, there's, a, there's a, uh, another issue that arises here in this uh, mandate for, um, for agriculture and for work and cultivation, uh, and that is uh, what's called uh, these days responsible stewardship. Uh, and uh, I'm drawing attention to uh, some things that folks like John Stott, for example, uh, have written about in one of the last books, actually the last book that he wrote, The Radical uh, Disciple, uh, published in 2010, chapter 4 on creation care, uh, is a, a fascinating uh, chapter in itself. Uh, and he says things like this, recognize that it's not our world but God's world for us. Right? We are stewards. This is my father's house. But we are to, we are, we are to exercise lordship over it. Uh, we don't share it equally with, uh, with the fish and, and trees. We, we are lords over our creation. It is there for us and to be utilized for the benefit of mankind. But we do have responsibility before God. Um, loving one's neighbor. Uh, we share this planet with others. Uh, in, in theory, at least, the idea of uh, responsible, what Stott calls responsible capitalism, uh, commitment to the environment and local economy. And, and that might, may sound as though you're getting into sort of party political issues. Uh, and and where, where, the line, where the line is drawn, I'm not, I'm not sure. Uh, but it does seem to me that... Uh, that Stott has something uh, very valid to say about our responsibility to our neighbor in the way we exercise our lordship over uh, creation and uh, making modest demands of it. And that's a very Stott sort of line. Uh, it seems quite inexplicable to me that there are some Christians who claim to love and worship God to be disciples of Jesus and yet have no concern for the earth that bears his stamp of ownership. They don't care about the abuse of the earth and indeed by their wasteful and overconsumptive lifestyles they collude in it. And that's, uh, that's a very Stottian uh, sort of, uh, it's a quotation from Christopher Wright, but it's a very Stottian uh, sort of uh, uh, perspective. 
and then avoid the extremes of uh, deification, you know, the, the, I think the, the, uh, where that program was going last week with the trees communicating the, the, the uh, tree-hugging route, I call it, uh, and exploitation, the tree felling without replanting uh, route. Uh, I, think, I think that we do, we do need to exercise responsible stewardship. Uh, and uh, also in ethical scientific research. Uh, we've talked before, I think, about, about the, the ethics of scientific research. We are explorers. It's part of the image of uh, God. Uh, we are to go where no man has gone before. We are to ask the question, you know, how does this work? And how can I improve this? But we are to do it ethically and, and, um, and morally. And then uh, at the end, uh, what are the key uh, areas today for disciples of Christ to cooperate with God in tending his creation? Uh, and I've listed there the three uh, that John Stott uh, lists. Uh, depletion of the earth's resources from wanton deforestation and habitat destruction to degradation of oceans and exploitation of fossil fuels. All of that is, is all very common uh, to us, of course. Uh, that's a, that's a, a, an area where Christians need to exercise uh, responsibility. It may, not be, it may not be the number one focus. You know, uh, sometimes people say, um, you know, sometimes people say uh, that the church is only mandate is um, the Great Commission. Uh, Matthew 28, go um, make disciples, go, go therefore and make disciples uh, and uh, uh, teaching them to observe whatever I've commanded you and uh, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Actually, uh, the Great Commission in Matthew 28 has, has four verbs one is an imperative to make disciples and the other three are all participles and they are uh, baptizing and uh, and uh, i mean going baptizing and and teaching and making disciples involves teaching teaching what teaching them to exercise responsible stewardship reflecting the imago Dei that has now been renewed in Christ. That's a part of discipleship. Uh, it's, it's, discipleship, it's, it's not just about... The church's message is not just be born again. That's a vital part of the church's message uh, to preach the gospel. But it's also about making disciples, uh, teaching them to observe whatever I have commanded you and lo. Uh, I am with you um, always. Uh, so uh, the depletion of the earth's resources, Stott says, excessive waste disposal is another, and climate change is another. Uh, and those of you who are interested in that, uh, I would recommend that you go and uh, read Stott's final book and uh, reflect on, on, uh, on what he has to say. Uh, I have a, uh, a sort of... Um, um, controversial appendix uh, on uh, was Adam a vegetarian uh, it, it, it belongs in here somewhere, wasn't quite sure where it belonged but it belonged in there somewhere uh, about the mandate because some, uh, some and Meredith Klein 
uh, taught at Westminster Seminary, uh, where, where Sinclair Ferguson uh, taught at one time. Uh, just to put all of that in a context for a minute, uh, Meredith Klein isn't, isn't sort of way out there somewhere. I mean, he's right central in, uh, in the Reformed uh, world. Uh, but Meredith Klein understood Genesis 1:28 and that mandate to also include to include the mandate for hunting uh, and uh, the mandate for meat eating. In other words, uh, that he that he did not accept uh, the often the, the often uh, suggested view that that Adam and Eve were vegetarians until after the flood. Uh, now. It's, it's a complicated argument and it's a very controversial one and I've added it there if you want to pursue that uh, you may do so um, but that's the, that's, uh, those are some of the mandates uh, that God gives to uh, Adam and Eve uh, in the garden particularly uh, the cultural mandate of exercising dominion uh, using one's gifts uh, in the exercising of dominion under God to, to give him glory, uh, and particularly the mandate for uh, work uh, and the mandate for responsible um, stewardship. Well, let's, uh, let's pray together. Father, we, uh, we thank you. We come before you again uh, this evening, conscious of how broad you, broadly you, you have spoken in Scripture concerning not just our salvation and renewal uh, in Christ, but you've also spoken about uh, our gifting and our responsibility to use those gifts and harness the resources of this universe, resources of light and sound and materials and the way in which we understand how this universe functions in the realms of science and sociology and other areas. And we, we ask, Lord, that you would uh, open our minds and hearts and uh, affections to all that the Scripture has to say and keep us ever mindful that our chief end is to give you glory and to enjoy uh, doing that and to enjoy being in your uh, presence forever. So we ask for your blessing, and we ask it all in the name of our blessed Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.